I guess Casper wanted to start this video by saying hello to everybody. So hello, and welcome to The Corporate Casket, a bi-weekly series where bad businesses go to die. We'll discuss any and everything from bad charities, terrible CEOs, and businesses that have a lot to hide. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about a movement that similar to PETA has gotten quite distorted and its message has been lost over the years through various scandals, controversies, and legal battles. That is the Greenpeace movement. So let me start by making a couple things abundantly clear. I support no-kill shelters, kindness to animals, and I'm against animal testing, but I can't support PETA for a wide, wide variety of reasons that I've also been vocal about. And in this case, I'm against deforestation. I do consider global warming and pollution to be huge challenges that we're dealing with and we need to talk about seriously, but I also have trouble supporting Greenpeace. And that is also for a wide variety of reasons. And I'm going to touch on a few of those here today. So with that out of the way, let's get started and dive right into Greenpeace's history. Peace and safety. We are trailblazers and scientists journeying to remind the world that there are still mysteries on this earth. We are activists and protectors, believing in the value of our ancient forests and all the creatures with which we share this beautiful, fragile planet. We are Greenpeace. Now the history of Greenpeace is a bit long. So this is gonna be a little more of a summary just to get a feel of what they're all about. They were founded in 1971 in British Columbia to oppose US nuclear testing at Amchitka, Alaska. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the loose-knit organization quickly attracted support from ecologically-minded individuals and began undertaking campaigns seeking, among other goals, the protection of endangered whales and seals from hunting, the cessation of dumping of toxic chemicals and radioactive waste at sea, and the end of nuclear weapons testing. The primary tactic of Greenpeace has been such direct nonviolent actions as steering small inflatable craft between harpoon guns of whalers and their cetacean prey and the plugging of industrial pipes discharging toxic wastes into the oceans and the atmosphere. Based on this alone, I don't really have a big problem with them. The don't make a wave campaign against this nuclear testing grew into the Greenpeace movement and it was, as it suggests, peaceful. Amchitka did become a nuclear site for some time and laborers said they were sick at the work site. It doesn't seem likely those that were negatively affected by the radiation exposure will ever see justice, though operations have ended. Greenpeace obviously became more than protesting the bombs in Alaska though. They're now a global movement with a mission of, according to their website, using peaceful protest and creative communication to expose global environmental problems and promote solutions that are essential to a green and peaceful future. They also have a video on their about page that's a two minute call to action. And again, no issues on the surface, protecting the earth, very worthy cause. Most scientists agree that the earth is deteriorating at a faster rate than during the 60s and 70s around the time Greenpeace was founded, but it would be worse off had it not been for the tireless campaigning of environmental NGOs. Even though it may seem like Greenpeace and other nonprofits have little effect or that we're fighting an endless battle when it comes to climate change, I'll give them credit where it's due. And they certainly give themselves credit where it's due, listing their successes on their website without seemingly mentioning their less than savory tactics. And speaking of those tactics, let's take a look at some of those and see where Greenpeace has made some serious missteps. We'll start off with some strange campaigning. Greenpeace has put the pressure on industry titans like Nike and even Nestle. They've gone after Lego for partnering with Shell, though, well, their strategy on this one reminds me of what PETA did when it came to Animal Crossing. The difference here is that Animal Crossing doesn't harm any actual wildlife, while Shell does. 
Their campaign isn't quite as cringy, but they have the everything is awesome song from the Lego movie slowed down to be a sad piano ballad while they flood a Lego Arctic landscape with oil. At first, The Guardian reported that the traction was slow to start, but the campaign did resonate with some people. The public put pressure on Lego and they didn't renew their contract with Shell. Lego's partnership with Shell dates to the 1960s and has involved Shell branded toy sets being sold around the world. So it's impressive that Greenpeace did manage to have an impact here. But some of their other campaigns have not only been a bit odd, but downright lies. One of these was in 1995 when Greenpeace took a tree from Koitajoki, a national park in Finland and put it on display around Austria and Germany. A lot of these sources have been a bit tricky to trace down exactly what happened because, well, in Finnish or unavailable, but those are apparently the two languages I get. So it's a little tricky to translate, but apparently Finnish newspapers reported on the issue because Greenpeace claimed the tree was originally logged from an ancient forest. It wasn't. And the Metzahalatus, a Finnish enterprise in charge of parks and wildlife, accused Greenpeace of theft because it was a normal tree left standing for its old age. So essentially Greenpeace cut down a normal old tree to advocate for not cutting down trees. Uh, So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Their intentions were to prevent deforestation. So the fact that they literally cut down a tree to do just that is well, it's kind of like PETA basically being the largest kill shelter in the world, but on a smaller scale. Overall, I'll admit Greenpeace isn't nearly as cringy when it comes to the PETA type campaigning. I haven't seen anyone dress up as Mother Earth and lay naked in the street covered in blood or anything anyway. But if this were the only issue I had with them, then we wouldn't be here today. Greenpeace's issues are far more than eye rolling and including quite often illegal events or things that are just plain wrong. We're gonna start with Patrick Moore. He was one of the OGs of Greenpeace, one of its earliest members. In 1976, he wrote an entire article about how he was opposed to nuclear power plants. He said that next to nuclear warheads, they are the most dangerous devices that man has ever created. Their construction and proliferation is the most irresponsible. In fact, the most criminal act to have taken on this planet. Seriously, we're talking world ending language here. He goes on to say, nuclear power plants are to put it simply slow atomic bombs. Both are the result of the same process, the splitting of atoms, which is commonly called nuclear fission. In an atomic bomb, the energy drive from nuclear fission is released instantaneously. In a nuclear reactor, the release of this energy is slowed down and used to produce steam, which runs steam turbines, which in turn powers electric generators. So all of this means he must've done some really serious research to come to this conclusion, and we should follow his lead and work to ban nuclear power plants, right? Well, no. Nowadays, Patrick Moore says Greenpeace is wrong and we should consider nuclear power. And I love the deflection too, how he puts it directly onto Greenpeace and not himself, even though he's the one that said those words. But here is what he said in 2007. Greenpeace is deliberately misleading the public into thinking that wind and solar energy, both of which are inherently intermittent and unreliable, can replace baseload power that is continuous and reliable. Only three technologies can produce large amounts of baseload power, fossil fuels, hydroelectric plants, and nuclear power. Given that we want to reduce fossil fuels and that potential hydroelectric sites are becoming scarce, nuclear power is the main option. But Greenpeace and its allies remain in denial despite the fact that many independent environmentalists and now the IPCC see the situation clearly. 
The thing is that Greenpeace wasn't always guided by science, according to Moore. He was completing a PhD in ecology when he started Greenpeace, but slowly Moore began to break away from the movement the more he realized how little it was based in any actual science. I can't say for certain if the paper he originally put out there in 76 was based on what science he had available at the time, but my point is that Greenpeace has on multiple occasions seemingly ignored science. Moore even explains that the reason he left Greenpeace in the first place was their decision to support a worldwide ban on chlorine. Greenpeace's apparent reasoning for this was that it contributes to toxic buildup by the Great Lakes. On their website to this day, Greenpeace states that isolated chlorine is dangerous and they demonize it. At room temperature, elemental chlorine is a yellowish green gas with a pungent odor similar to that of bleach. For shipment and storage, the gas is usually pressurized and cooled to form an amber liquid. If the chemical were to leak, it would quickly turn into a gas and spread rapidly. Chlorine is incredibly dangerous, unstable, and can react with a variety of other chemicals when released into the environment. An accidental leak or spill can pose serious health risks to those exposed. And I'm not gonna dispute that. It's an ingredient in bleach, we know that. And as a former lifeguard, I used to have to work with bleach a lot. And being in that chemical room, I know damn well that you do not mess around with chlorine and you have to take it very seriously when you're working with it. But just as the Cancer Council says that by itself chlorine can be dangerous, there's also plenty of evidence that when chlorine dissolves in water, it forms hypochlorous acid, which partially breaks down to form the hypochlorite ion. This acid and ion are toxic to potentially harmful microorganisms and disinfect drinking water. Banning chlorine altogether isn't the answer and misinformation isn't going to help Greenpeace. It just makes them look bad and potentially harms others. Another example of their science hurting others is the case of GMOs. GMOs or genetically modified organisms are subject to a ton of ongoing debate. The non-GMO project says that most of the research used to claim GMOs are safe have been performed by biotech companies, but after 20 years of data, including 900 studies and tests, there are no differences that implicate a higher risk to human health from genetically processed engineered foods to non-genetically engineered counterparts. Corteva published, as you can see from the years of research, genetically modifying a plant is nothing new. Humans have been doing it for more than 10,000 years for good reasons. Farmers face many challenges during a growing season. One of the most devastating challenges is having enough rainfall to raise a crop. A dry year can inhibit many of the developmental processes in a crop and cause the harvest to be significantly reduced. So some crops are modified to be more tolerant to drought stress, thus reducing crop shortages and keeping food prices more consistent. Another reason the agriculture industry modifies food is to protect the food industry. Pests can cause detrimental effects to crops. To protect them, insect resistant traits are inserted into plants genetics to keep insects from feeding on them. Having these traits in crops helps farmers produce the maximum amount per acre. As a result, farmers produce more food without using more soil. The scientific world has proven that GMOs are a necessity and are safe for consumption. This isn't to say that there aren't issues with GMO crops. The situation is complex, but GMOs are tightly regulated too. And I could be here all day trying to explain the whole controversy, but the point is, is that it's kind of better than starving. And I think we can agree on that at the very least, no matter what you think. I mean, think about it. Uh, Lemons are genetically modified. We don't actually have lemons in nature. So life did not give us lemons. We always gave ourselves lemons. So just something to think about. But anyway, Greenpeace disagrees. In 2002, the US offered food aid to Zambia and the president rejected it because of it being genetically engineered and Greenpeace applauded them for that. 
the article on the topic was called Eat This or Die, which pisses me off in of itself. First of all, no one has demanded Zambia eat anything. Their choice was to reject GMOs and they made that of their own volition. But the way that Greenpeace writes about this topic is as if the US is forcing poison down starving people's throats and it's kind of gross, but they call it exploiting the hungry. The Zambian president's rejection this month of US food aid shocked the world. With child malnutrition soaring to 59% in his drought-stricken country, how dare he turn down this generous gift of maize? Perhaps because the US donation was an ultimatum, eat our unwanted genetically engineered food or die. Perhaps because he knows that the future of his country's agricultural production is at stake. Greenpeace says that yes, GMOs are preferable to no food, but considering they say no one should be forced to eat genetically engineered grain against their will, the sentence before, they aren't really convincing me that they'd eat GMOs even if it was the only food available. They insist that starving people still deserve the dignity of choice, but only give Greenpeace's small farmers as a true viable solution to world hunger, which let's be real, isn't enough on its own. Make no mistake, Zambia has every right to make their own choice. I feel a bit strange about it considering that it's the government speaking on behalf of starving citizens that may be willing to eat GMOs, but they're not the infuriating ones here. It's Greenpeace. It's the activists that urge Zambia to turn away food for starving people and that Greenpeace article, Eat This or Die, that gets under my skin. Years later in June, 2016, 107 Nobel laureates, people who are awarded the Nobel prize themselves tried to convince Greenpeace to end the campaign against GMOs, golden rice in particular. Golden rice is of course a genetically modified crop engineered specifically to contain vitamin A because vitamin A deficiencies can cause blindness and death around the world. It's shown to be safe, but well, Greenpeace doesn't see it that way. Silvia Ribeiro of ETC, another environmental group, even went so far as to call all 107 Nobel laureates ignorant. She even sourced Greenpeace and more ETC statements in her article as reasons for why they're ignorant. No scientific studies from what I could tell. So I guess that's how you tell she's legit, right? Another longstanding issue with Greenpeace has been their anti-whaling tactics. Greenpeace has been against whaling, especially in Norway for a while now. In theory, that's fantastic. Whales are gentle giants of the ocean and I love that cause. But again, there's so many problems I have with how Greenpeace handles it. One is who they work with. Now, this was back in the 70s and Greenpeace did eventually part ways with Watson in 1977, but Paul Watson, the founder of the Shepherd Society is one of the leaders in the campaign against Japanese whaling. This organization has been in the headlines for sabotaging and damaging a number of whaling vessels. Late last year and early this year, Japan requested of the US representative of International Whaling Commission that the Sea Shepherd's tax exempt status be revoked. Japan argues that Sea Shepherd's actions threaten safety at sea. Watson has a flamboyant style, which he uses to get publicity. In his book, Earth Force, an Earth Warrior's Guide to Strategy, he states, the nature of the mass media today is such that truth is irrelevant. What is true and what is right to the general public is what is defined as true and right by the mass media. A headline common on Monday's newspaper far outweighs the revelation of inaccuracy revealed in a small box inside the paper on Tuesday or Wednesday. He also states, if you do not know an answer, a fact or a statistic, then simply follow the example of an American president and do as Ronald Reagan did. Make it up on the spot and deliver the information confidently and without hesitation. Watson also dismissed comments about racism, despite many comments on blogs and websites about Japanese whaling having racist remarks in them. He just says, of course, anytime the word racist is tossed into an argument, the politically correct crowd can be counted on to react with righteous horror. Seriously? 
It's not about being politically correct. It's about not excusing racism. It's not too hard to see why these two used to work together, but again, they parted ways, though I do see some similarities in how they operate and dismiss criticism. The reason why I find Sea Shepherd worth mentioning is because they're actually one of the most vocal organizations that have spoken out against Greenpeace's anti-whaling campaigns. Paul Watson wrote, Melanie, who describes herself as a Greenpeace ocean campaigner, wants money so she can go down to the Southern oceans to save the whales. She says she will be fighting to help the whales escape and states for every dollar you donate will mean another hour, day, and week that Greenpeace can stay on the water saving whales. Their success, according to Melanie, will depend on you sending a donation now. She's right, of course. The Greenpeace campaign is not about looking for whaling ships. Success to Greenpeace is about recruiting memberships. What Melanie does not tell you is that Greenpeace has already raised tens of millions of dollars this year to save the whales and tens of millions of dollars the year before and the year before that. But here's the thing, it's really hard for me to trust a word Paul says after what he said about making up things. After that, his pretty blatant excuse of racism and it's not like I'm gonna go around running and supporting Sea Shepherd either. At the same time, he's also not the only one saying this. Greenpeace uses a lot more of its resources on recruiting members and making money than on protecting the environment, said Bjorn Okern, who managed a Greenpeace organization in Norway from 1990 until he was fired last spring. He says Greenpeace thrives from offering green alibis, allowing members, often from cities, to clear their conscience with issues such as whaling that do not affect their lives or personal consumption. Greenpeace is leading the environmental movement astray by downgrading important tasks and making people believe that if they can just save one mink whale, they're saving the world, Okran said in an interview. Again, this isn't to say that Greenpeace has done nothing for whaling, but it wasn't hard to find situations where they went overboard either. For example, in 2008, two Greenpeace activists stole 50 pounds of whale meat from a delivery service, even though the meat came from whales killed during Japan's backed research hunts, which are exempt from the 1986 international ban. Critics say the scientific hunts are a cover, but regardless, I'm pretty sure stealing whale meat isn't going to stop someone from killing whales. It's just like, you're a little too late, like they're kind of already dead. Junichi Saito, 33, and Toru Suzuki, 43, were known as the Tokyo Two, though court officials say they won't serve time in jail. I'm guessing because of time already served though the San Diego Union Tribune doesn't say for sure. Greenpeace Japan said the ruling was wholly disproportionate, but maybe don't steal from a research unit? They didn't even end up with jail time. So seriously, Greenpeace, when did it become okay to endorse breaking the law to promote your cause? But speaking of breaking the law to promote causes, that's what we're gonna get into next. But before we dive into that, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor. Summer is right around the corner and everyone is finally getting vaccinated and able to go out again, which is so exciting. But no matter whether you're going out this summer for work or for play, a lot of us are gonna be on the move again. So here's some advice for you. Take your Raycons with you. With Raycons, you'll get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. And Raycons look great and they feel even better. They come in a range of cool colors, even though like many of you know, I chose the boring black ones because I just just love anything that's black. And these earbuds last forever. I cannot remember the last time I actually had to charge mine and I take them when I go on walks with Casper, when I'm doing like shopping at Target so I don't have to interact with people. Like I take them everywhere and I, I think the last time I charged them was maybe a couple months ago. 
So Raycon is currently offering 15% off all of their products for my listeners. And here's what you gotta do to get it. You simply go to buyraycon.com slash casket. And when you go there, you'll get 15% off your entire order. And if you're extra like I am, then you're probably gonna grab a spare pair as well. So I keep a pair in like my car and then I also keep a pair in my purse so that I always have a pair somewhere near me. So if you wanna get started with Raycon, make sure to go to buyraycon.com slash casket for 15% off your first order. Again, that's buyraycon.com slash casket. This episode is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. So after years of being ripped off by massive wireless providers with bills that just don't even seem to make sense, it always seems like there's a catch when it comes to paying for your mobile phone. So like many of you, when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just $15 a month, I thought, hey, what's the catch? But as many of you know, after speaking with them and talking to them, it really just makes sense. There isn't one. By cutting out retail stores, there's no crazy overhead costs that get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. And instead they just pass on sweet, sweet savings. And for people looking for extra savings, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can take your own phone or get a new one and keep your phone number or get a new phone number. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. So switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. If you wanna get started today and get the plan shipped to your door for free, make sure to go to mintmobile.com slash casket. Again, that's mintmobile.com slash casket. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash casket. As it turns out, breaking the law is actually nothing new for Greenpeace. In 2014, Norway's Coast Guard had to tow away a Greenpeace ship that had tried to block Statoli's rig from drilling in the Barents Sea. Greenpeace said in an emailed statement, the Norwegian Coast Guard tonight boarded the Greenpeace ship Esperanza outside of the country's territorial waters to end a high profile and perfectly legal protest against Arctic oil drilling. If that were the case, I'd be on Greenpeace's side here. People have the right to protest and protesting drilling is their cause, so that's fine. But the government declared the area a safety zone and their appeal was denied. So Greenpeace was actually not allowed to be there, which makes it illegal. Greenpeace had argued that Statoli's drilling plans posed a threat to Bear Island, an uninhabited wildlife sanctuary that is home to rare species, including polar bears, as an oil spill would be nearly impossible to clean up the Arctic because of the harsh conditions. Statoil rejected the claim, saying there was a very low risk of an oil spill and an extremely low risk of any spillage reaching Bear Island, about 170 kilometers away from the drilling site. Is this me advocating for drilling? No, but let's also be a bit realistic here. The world does still depend on oil. Delays to the start of drilling cost the company about $1.26 million each day. So they're really only succeeding at pissing people off and probably costing people job money. Until we actually have sustainable alternatives to oil, a protest like this is just going to continue to fall on deaf ears. But again, this is not the only time that this has happened. Suncor actually filed a lawsuit for $1.5 million at lost in oil production during one of the protests from Greenpeace back in 2009. The Calgary-based energy giant has also filed an injunction to bar Greenpeace activists from its oil sands property. 
We have a responsibility to uphold safety and the activists went on our site as uninvited guests pose not only a safety risk to themselves, but to our employees and contractors on our site, Seatol said. 21 Greenpeace activists were arrested and charged with mischief to property over $5,000 after stopping two Suncor conveyor belts that carry oil sands materials to a nearby upgrader as part of a blockade at the company's open pit mine near Fort McMurray. And what they did, in case you're wondering, was chain themselves to oil sands trucks after sneaking into the mine. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like much came from the lawsuit when I searched for it, though the 21 protesters had to pay bail and an eye was kept on them for quite a while. But these are older cases from 2014 and 2009, so surely they've learned not to put oil workers' lives at risk for a cause, right? Well, no, they haven't. Greenpeace filed a lawsuit against Norway Arctic, arguing that everyone has a right to a healthy environment. And that's all well and good, trying to stop more drilling, but the lawsuit failed and the appeal failed as of January, 2020. However, even though these Northern oil rigs told Greenpeace to fuck off before and the law told them to back off too, Greenpeace still managed to get fined again because they were at a rig where they shouldn't have been again. If they stayed in their boats at a safe distance, I don't think I'd really have an issue. I mean, personally, I don't feel like going up against these workers is actually the way to stop drilling by any means, but hey, at least, you know, be safe while you do it, but it wasn't peaceful either. The Guardian article from July, 2020 reads, Greenpeace has been fined 80,000 pounds after a Scottish court found it guilty of willful defiance of a court order banning it from occupying a North Sea oil rig. Lady Wolf, sitting in the court of session in Edinburgh said, Greenpeace UK had deliberately broken an injunction against occupying a platform owned by the US contractor Transocean in June, 2019. She said its breaches of the injunction were so serious she would be justified in jailing John Sauvin, Greenpeace's UK executive director for up to two years or imposing a suspended sentence. He orchestrated the action from the start knowing he was breaching a court order. Again, by no means are these the only times. It's so consistent that I can't even really just call it like Greenpeace anymore. They're more like green endangerers, but you know that'd be too long to fit on t-shirts or posters, but I think you get the point. In 2017, Norwegian authorities arrested 35 Greenpeace personnel because they illegally encroached on a large oil rig. In 2014, they used a fucking truck to break through security barriers and ram their way into a nuclear power plant in Eastern Europe, because that sounds safe. In 2013, piracy charges were later reduced to hooliganism, which that's such a cool charge, when 30 activists climbed onto an oil platform. In 2012, six Greenpeace activists were arrested for trespassing. In 2011, it was for boarding another oil rig on two separate occasions. I think you get the point. As the Daily Maverick puts it, Greenpeace has every right to campaign, to publish research and marketing of dubious honesty, to protest actions it believes are harmful to the environment, and to go to court to enforce environmental laws. These are rights we all share, no matter what our cause, but Greenpeace exceeds the bounds of civil legal behavior. It has established a pattern of criminal behavior that permeates the organization all the way to the top. If this was any other organization, such as say Enron, senior executives would be in prison and the organization would be wound up. The group would like to believe it is breaking the law for some noble purpose, but even if that is true, that does not justify breaking the law and forcibly disrupting or endangering the legal operations of those who disagree. Noble ends do not justify illegal means, yet every time the group's members get arrested, all they get is free publicity instead of meaningful consequences for their actions. If your organization, whether it's for the environment, world hunger, animal rights, any of it, is putting people in danger, then you're doing it wrong, plain and simple. 
I won't pretend that Greenpeace hasn't faced any violence themselves. In 1985, their ship, the Rainbow Warrior was attacked and a photographer on board was killed. Of course, this is horrible and tragic. And so it's not hard to see why Greenpeace is so quick to reject the title of eco-terrorist when they also faced an attack in the eighties. But as of today, in the recent years, it's Greenpeace that still continues to put other people in danger. One other very important piece of history that we can't ignore about Greenpeace is Brent Spar. This one's a little bit of a mess, so bear with me. Similar in dimensions to Big Ben, Brent Spar created few waves during its 15 years of operation as a storage stop for crude oil in the nearby Brent field. This changed when a new pipeline connecting the drilling platforms directly to the mainland rendered the structure obsolete. The disposal options were the subject of negotiation between Shell and the UK government for more than three years. The preferred solution involved towing the rig to deep water 150 miles to the west of Scotland, breaking it up with explosives and sinking it, along with the residual oil, sludges and waste products remaining in its tanks. It would have been one of the first installations in the North Sea to reach the end of its life and be decommissioned in this way. It was the possibility that the fate of Brent Spar could establish a precedent for the deep water disposal of many other North Sea installations that caught the eye of veteran campaigning organization, Greenpeace. Greenpeace boarded Brent Spar on April 30th, 1995 and stuck around for about a month, enduring water cannons and drawing attention to themselves. A giant boycott of Shell happened, even the firebombing of a service station, a 20% sales drop in Germany. All this until on June 20th, Shell said it would drop the deep sea disposal plans and find an alternative solution. But here's the problem with how Greenpeace went about this again. They said that Spar had some 5,500 tons of oil on board. The final figure ended up being about 10 tons of waste oil. And don't get me wrong, 10 tons of waste oil in the ocean is not good, but it is also a far cry from five and a half thousand. Ethical Corp also adds, the role played by the media was not beyond scrutiny. Following the revelation of Greenpeace's flawed science, questions were asked about how the media, both print and broadcast, had failed to provide balanced coverage. The charge was that they had rather too easily broadcast film footage and allegations from Greenpeace that made sensational coverage, but hindered objectivity. In the autumn of 1995, media executives at the Edinburgh International Television Festival acknowledged this shortfall. In spite of the scientific inaccuracies, one of the strongest and longest lasting effects of the Brent Spar summer was the elevation of Greenpeace and by extension, NGOs broadly in public awareness and trust on questions of principle. This was due in no small part to the organization's skill in taking the issues directly to consumers, voters, and leaders via the media and particularly the just emerging internet. And this is unfortunately how Greenpeace really built their empire and their popularity. It was on a lie. As much as I wanna give them credit for being seemingly peaceful and getting Shell to change their minds, it's tough because they also so overly exaggerated a problem to make it seem so much worse than what it really was. If you have an important cause and truly their core mission is an important cause, but you shouldn't have to lie to get it off the ground because it's only going to hurt your credibility in the long-term and it's going to follow you forever. And your cause shouldn't be hurting anyone else, plain and simple. However, we still aren't done here. They've also damaged the Nazca lines in Peru, hurting the earth they've apparently been working so hard to protect. In 2014, Greenpeace laid out large yellow letters on the desert floor beside the geoglyph of a giant hummingbird. The letters read, time for a change, the future is renewable. Peru says the activists damaged an area around the hummingbird by grinding rocks into the sandy soil. Access to the area around the grounds is strictly prohibited. 
Peru's president called the Greenpeace actions a lack of respect for our cultural patrimony and Peruvian laws. The ministry wanted the activists to be detained before they could leave Peru, but a judge initially refused to hold any of the activists and they are believed to have left Peru. Again, what the hell is it with Greenpeace and getting special treatment? They say they'll face fair and reasonable consequences, but when have we seen them be fair and reasonable with anyone? Their apology is not only hollow, but what they did was so beyond tasteless and disrespectful. We shouldn't have to tell Greenpeace of all people not to tag a historic site. The Peruvian people consider this area sacred and there's no easy fix to this. Their spokesperson, Kyle Ash, even said that, the surprise to us was that this resulted in some kind of moral offense. We're remorseful for that. They're surprised that this was a moral offense? How could it not be? Anna Marie Cogorno, president of the Marie Riche Association, named after the German archeologist whose groundbreaking research on the Nazca lines from 1940 onwards saw them gain recognition and protection, told the Guardian. It's not a matter of money. The destruction is irreparable. The hummingbird etching on which the Greenpeace stunt was laid was one of the only lines which was completely untouched and perfectly conserved, she said. It's one of the symbols of Peru, she added. Now look, Greenpeace has done some good. They have a pretty decent score on Charity Navigator and over 80% of their money goes towards their program. But if that means constantly endangering others' lives, then the deception behind their fundraising and ruining sacred symbols, you know, I'm just not really here for that. Activist Facts has a whole host of reasons not to support Greenpeace. So here are some highlights for you in case you're not convinced. Greenpeace claims that world's commercial fisheries could collapse within the next 40 years and that 90% of stocks of large predatory fish have already been lost. Unfortunately for the alarmists at Greenpeace, these numbers are based on a long since debunked study that has been described by a number of independent researchers and even the original author of the study as flawed and full of errors. I followed their source and sure enough, this information has been around since 2009, but Greenpeace stuck with the debunked statistic instead. In 2006, marine ecologist Boris Worm of Dalhouse University suggested that the oceans would be empty of fish by 2048. His prediction made for good soundbite science and the media ran with it. The problem is his prediction was wrong and now he's admitted as much. A brand new study published in the journal Science Today finds Worm saying his plans to be hosting a seafood party in 2048 instead of mourning the loss of all marine ecosystems. In regards to tuna, Greenpeace has launched a national campaign vilifying tuna companies and Gavin Gibbons, a spokesperson for the National Fisheries Institute, calls their efforts childish stunts as opposed to real science and meaningful collaboration. Greenpeace marginalizes itself in the conversation about tuna sustainability by choosing to be a sideshow. Yeah, that's a great way to work with the fishing industry by pushing them away as far as possible. Thankfully, like many other fish species Greenpeace has red listed, evidence shows that the species used in canned tuna are nearly as plentiful as they were 60 years ago. Ray Hilborn, professor of aquatic and fishery sciences at the University of Washington and a former member of the President's Commission on Ocean Policy notes that on average, the tuna and billfish of the world are fished at levels that will produce a maximum sustainable yield and are at the same abundance that will produce maximum sustainable yield the US fisheries are doing extremely well. Greenpeace has also said there's no uses of chlorine, which we regard as safe. They make more money from anti-whaling than Norway and Iceland combined make from whaling. They exaggerate statistics about us running out of trees. You get the picture. Greenpeace does far less for the environment than you'd think. I'd rather support the Sierra Club because literally the only thing I see when I look them up on Wikipedia is that they've had some controversy for not wanting high density areas in Cali. 
and criticism from anti-immigration groups for being opposed to a border wall, which, you know, that's the kind of criticism I'm okay with seeing, ruffling the feathers of the xenophobes, you know? So yeah, that's that sounds okay to me. They've got good ratings and I'd look into them before I'd put a dollar towards Greenpeace. Ultimately, here's my issue with Greenpeace is their core mission, just like PETA when we talked about this at the beginning of the episode, is routed in something good. But when you choose to make yourself a mockery instead of using your platform for good and to actually bring information towards people to help them understand, all you do is isolate yourself and the cause and it makes people dismiss you and your causes immediately. But anyway, with that being said, that's where I'm ending today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And if you wanna connect with me outside of the episodes, make sure to go to my description box where you'll see my Linktree link, which has all my links for all of my social media and projects I'm involved with outside of here. So thank you all so much for making it to another episode. Love you guys, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.